a listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. This is the podcast in which we tackle what is going on in the world. This man breaks it down. We choose the situation, something that is unfolding somewhere in the world every week, and then he breaks it down and makes it very easy to understand the backstory, what's happening now, the future, how Australia plays a role. My name's Kate Mack. We've worked together for a number of years now in TV and now here. Well, he he is informing me at the same time that he's informing you, essentially, and I just throw in some questions sometimes that we need to know. <laughs> but two PhDs, three, sorry, PhDs in international relations, there is no other person than this man who is a master and knows pretty much everything that's going on in the world. Uh, and been a media commentator for decades, Dr. Keith. Today, we're talking about the US. I mean, the US has been at their military, the highest level of military performance, I guess, for a very, very long time. And look at all the wars that they have mostly won, although not so much in recent years. Can they ever win a war again? That's what we're talking about today. Yeah. Well, what provoked this, of course, are the events that we see in Afghanistan at the moment. Indeed, by the time this goes to air, it may well already be over, Red Rover. It, it's a really amazing how quickly the Taliban are taking over in Afghanistan. So the United States entered Afghanistan 20 years ago, which makes it the longest war the Americans ever fought, entered Afghanistan to get Osama bin Laden and destroy Al-Qaeda. The Al-Qaeda were largely wiped out and bin Laden, as we now know, fled over the border and lived in retirement in Pakistan down the road from a military academy. The United States stayed on along with their allies like Australia and the operation has cost 41 Australian lives. The worry that we've got is that after all those, well, some people are talking about trillions of dollars spent in Afghanistan, after all of that effort, um, the blood and treasure, to use American expression, the Americans are retreating from Afghanistan. Previous presidents have kicked the can down the road. Bush handed it over to Obama. Obama didn't want to admit that America was losing, and so Obama handed it over to Trump. Trump, to his credit, told the truth. And his statements resonated with a lot of ordinary Americans who said, why should we continue to fight these losing wars? And he then set up the the pathway by which Biden is now able to leave Afghanistan. Basically, the Americans are being thrown out of Afghanistan. And, of course, um, we're now looking to a post-US Afghanistan, which I think should be the subject perhaps of a separate interview uh, looking at the role that China will play now in Afghanistan because China wants to get at the raw material, particularly in the northern part of the country. They've already had one meeting with the Taliban. They already regard the Taliban as, as the government designate. But what got me thinking was the fact that I had to give a talk recently on the subject, can the United States still win wars? It's interesting to note that in 1940, the army of Greece was larger than the army of the United States. The change occurred on December the 7th, 1941, which is the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. The Americans prior to this time never liked having large standing armies. They associated large standing armies with oppressors like King George III. So they decided not to have a large standing army uh, and instead they gave people the right to bear arms. So anybody invading the United States would come up against a civilian force well-armed. That's the logic behind that right to bear arms. 
It'll deter invaders. And with the exception of the British in 1812, it worked. People haven't tried to invade the United States. And so December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked the United States. Suddenly the United States has to stop being isolationist, has to get involved in world affairs. The four years of America's involvement in World War II were absolutely transformative. We talk a lot about what the Chinese have done in the last 30 years, but the American transformation in World War II was amazing. Uh, One Ford factory alone had more industrial output during World War II than the whole of Italy. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It's a great story. Again, the subject perhaps of a separate podcast, how you can mobilise the country. So America finished World War II in 1945, with the largest military force in world history, and then it stopped winning wars. (laughs) That has been the paradox. So when I was giving this talk, I had to list American military victories since 1945, and I could only come up with four. Oh. It's actually really a test of geography. One is the 1983 invasion of Grenada. Uh, Not Grenada, that's in Spain. Grenada is in the Americas the 1989 invasion of Panama to arrest Manuel Noriega, who used to be on the CIA payroll, oh. but, <laughs> but then uh, sort of uh, betrayed the United States. Um, you then get the liberation of Kuwait, which is the, the most obvious American victory, and a great victory indeed. And, and then the Kosovo War, which was uh, President Clinton's operation to defeat the Serbs who were killing the Kosovars. All the rest have either been defeats like Vietnam now Afghanistan, or there have been draws like Korea. And and when you look at the other wars, Iraq, Syria, I mean, you can't really count those as victories at all. So if you look at the the four that went well, they were all conventional operations where the Americans could use their technological might and it paid off. You know, the the liberation of Kuwait, for example, was a large Iraqi conventional force up against a large... American conventional force with their allies like Australia. A conventional war fought in the desert, not quite as good as the Great Plain of Europe uh, in 1940 if you were Germany or 1944-45 if you were the allies, but it's still a wide open space in the desert. And conventional war worked very well. The problem is when the Americans tried to deal with what I call the new warfare state, which is the return of guerrilla warfare. So guerrilla warfare is the oldest form of warfare, although the name itself is only 200 years old. Guerrilla means small in Spanish or Portuguese. And the British mobilised the Spanish and Portuguese to fight Napoleon's invading French forces. But if you look back over history, it was an equal opportunity form of warfare. So if you look at Vietnamese history, we see the Trung sisters in uh, AD 55 who fought the Chinese liberated the or try to liberate the country from the Chinese invasion. Or um, you look at uh, Boadicea in England, and she fought the Romans. So you, you go back into history, and you will find that men and women and children were involved in guerrilla warfare. And then eventually guerrilla warfare uh, is uh, superseded by conventional warfare, fighting in large formations, carrying your arms openly, wearing a uniform. And that then becomes the predominant form of warfare. In two world wars last century, we had Lawrence of Arabia. But Lawrence himself said that his campaign against the Turks in what is today Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Middle East, that was a sideshow of a sideshow. 
the real battle was being fought on the Western Front. And then, of course, in World War II, Winston Churchill was a great admirer of Lawrence and he was always looking for a second Lawrence of Arabia. And he found him in um, Brigadier Ord Wingate, who uh, created his own guerrilla force to fight in Burma, today's Myanmar. Uh, in fact, a colleague of mine had to identify the body because it was brought down in a terrible plane accident in Burma. Major Andrew Boyd, a friend of mine um, in the Indian Army, had to uh, investigate the crash site. So, but again, that was a sideshow. The Japanese were were beaten in conventional terms and ultimately, of course, we had the use of atomic weapons uh, rather than these guerrilla struggles. But it's interesting, in World War II, you do get the rise of Colonel David Sterling and his special air service, which were these long-raid patrols behind German lines. And SAS probably destroyed more German planes than the Royal Air Force did because they would just simply go onto these huge airfields and just blow up the planes, set light to them, and get out again. So in a sense, David Sterling, again, whom I knew, uh, David Sterling created, if you like, the beginning of this new era of warfare with that type of operation. And, and then since World War II, we've seen this much more dramatic return to guerrilla warfare. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking today about whether the US can ever win another war. We're just talking about guerrilla welfare before the break. But Keith, I just want to ask for a second why the US, while we're talking about how many wars they've been involved with and, and the um, the success rate, why do they get involved with so many that cost so much money and don't get them anywhere? I, I mean, Obviously, politically, you had movies made in the past which should demonstrate that these wars are done to create a distraction a lot of the time. Well, there are, you know, elements of distraction. The Iraq war, for example, didn't make any sense, and we were lied to about that. Yeah. Um, what, what are the reasons? Why, how do they get away with getting into so many wars with their population? Well, because they're the global police officer. So before World War II, that was Britain's role. So Britain, for example, took on the slave trade after 1807. With the defeat of Napoleon in the uh, Battle of Trafalgar, the Royal Navy had control of the uh, fleets around the world and they decided they would stamp out the slave trade. So that was Britain operating as a global police officer. World War I bankrupted Britain and uh, after World War II, the United States filled that vacuum. And so, well, as you'd know from our time in television, Whatever the issue is, we always ask, you know, what are the Americans doing? It's as though whatever happens in the world, you have to find out what the Americans are intending to do because they're the default position on so many issues, at least for the moment. I think that era is coming to an end. Uh, But the Americans just feel obliged to get involved in opposing communism, fighting for freedom and all that stuff. They were the ones who were recruited by the Kuwaiti royal family to fight Saddam Hussein. Uh, after Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Uh, We still don't know the full story, incidentally, behind that. Did the Americans give a green light to the invasion? As long as Iraq continued to sell the oil, they weren't worried about who had it. But the Kuwaiti royal family, who kept their money in London, they never trusted the neighbours in that region, (laughs) they were able to employ a good public relations firm, which then got America involved in the war. 
It's a, it's a great story. It just shows how gullible the general public can be and politicians. It's a brilliant story in its own right, which, again, we need to explore, I think, in a, in a later podcast about how gullible people can be. So the Americans then found themselves as the liberators of Kuwait because people just expect the Americans to carry out that operation. What we're seeing since Donald Trump's day has been this belief that it's not going to be America's responsibility to keep on solving other people's problems. The Americans don't have the money for that. It's very different. If you go back to President Kennedy's inauguration speech in um, January of 1961, very inspirational speech the president gave, but looking back on it, it was foolhardy. He said that the Americans would pay any price, defeat any foe to defend liberty. Well, that's crazy. In those days, the Americans thought they were rich enough to do it, and then they got bogged down in Vietnam or more recently Afghanistan. Fighting for those freedoms. Well, it's interesting. Robert McNamara, who was one of the architects of the defeat in Vietnam, he was troubled for the rest of his life. When I got to meet him, he was a little withered-up old man, and he was haunted by the failure of the Americans in Vietnam. This was this super smart guy who played a very important role in World War II and then in subsequent periods with the Ford Motor Car Company, et cetera, and yet he had really made a mess in Vietnam along with others, and he was haunted by it. And in one of his final books, he said the problem with the Americans is that we lack empathy. So empathy is the ability to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. If you look back at the American experience in Afghanistan, for example, they were unable to understand that the Afghanis don't like invaders. They will welcome you as a tourist, or would have done in the old days before 1979. You'd be welcome as a tourist, but not as an invader, all the way back to Alexander the Great. And the Americans couldn't see that. And so uh, Robert McNamara, I think, was correct that the problem for the Americans is their inability be able to put themselves into other people's shoes. Is it also that touch of arrogance that you can get with, like Americans don't really learn, and now this is a huge generalisation, so I'm happy to be called out on it, but, you know, even their own education system, they don't learn about the rest of the world. They're quite no. an insular culture, so they're learning about how America is great all the time and they they don't know much more than that about the world. No. And so they only understand it from their own influence in the world. Exactly. So they have a very insular approach. They've, uh, somebody said that warfare is God's way of teaching Americans geography. You know, of the four places that I've identified of being a clear American successes, I think most Americans would actually have difficulty finding those four places on a map of the world. So, yes, there is this real problem about America's insularity and the arrogance because they say we are the richest, we're the most technologically advanced country in the world, therefore we will win. Ironically, of course, that's what the Russians thought when they invaded Afghanistan in 1979 and were there for a decade and lost. But they said, look, we've got advanced tanks and all sorts of things. And they were up against people who were fighting with World War II rifles and even older muskets. Um, But what they used to do, just to give an example about how they fought the Soviet Union, on these mountain passes, they used to put boulders down on the passes which would then stop the tank, and then the mujahideen, the guerrillas, uh, would come from uh, out uh, from their hiding place and stuff fabric up the tank's exhaust pipe and stall the tank. And they would then sit on the tank and work out what they're going to do. Do we tip it over into the ravine or do we just set light to it or do we place explosives under it? 
but whatever happens, that Russian tank crew were going to perish. And so here you had, again, the arrogance of a superpower, the Russians, and yet they were beaten by people fighting very old tactics. Which is really funny you say that as well because I remember when they were going, when America was even going to Afghanistan, people just that when you don't you haven't learnt from history. You don't win in Afghanistan. No, no one wins in Afghanistan. Exactly. <laughs> and the British were stupid enough to try it three times. At least the Americans can, and the Russians can say, well, we only did we only failed once. The British failed twice in the 19th century. And the young Winston Churchill said trying to capture an Afghani is like trying to jump into a river and catch a fish with your bare hands. And so that <laughs> he wrote that in the 1890s. When he was a young journalist, a young British officer fighting, uh, following the troops in, the, in another British failure in Afghanistan. So the British have even less excuse as to why they failed again uh, in the last 20 years in Afghanistan. They've, they've had previous experience. They didn't learn from it. And let's look at cultures that don't get involved with anything. China, as a perfect example, does not get involved with wars, do they? Not at the moment. But don't forget, this is going to be the big question, which I think we need to look at in another podcast is there a risk of the of the Chinese filling this vacuum, which will be created by the Americans leaving the world scene in the same way the Americans filled the vacuum of the British leaving the world scene? But then you look at the motives for China, what would they care about enough to get involved with in a military Trade, state? money. South China Sea. The South China Sea, <laughs> Djibouti. They've already got a base now in the Middle East. And it's interesting because the Indians are building a top secret base that we don't talk about on another part of the Indian Ocean. And it's clearly a reply to what China is getting up to in that same region. Um, And so we're already seeing the seeds of the mid-21st century conflict being planted, India versus China. That's interesting. And what about like with China, who's their greatest allies? Well, that's the problem for China, which is why they're paranoid, because they have so few friends. They're not sure the Russians are really deep down their friends. Uh, The Russians have a tribal memory of being invaded by the Golden Horde, and they feel very vulnerable about their rear end. And their great fear is that as the Russian population declines, the Chinese will just move west into the eastern end of the old Soviet Union, into Russia. So I don't think that they're great friends. The Vietnamese certainly don't like them. They had 2,000 years of fighting the Chinese. They just regarded the um, French and the Americans and, the, and, and Australians as temporary problems. The real problem is what do you do about China immediately to your north? So if you look at the map, China is surrounded by countries that don't like it. And that, of course, feeds into the paranoia that some Chinese feel, which helps to explain, I think, why they're behaving badly in the South China Sea. Which explains a lot to me because I think when you were talking then, I was thinking to myself, well, it's like any human relationship. If you go to war with someone, if you have them by your side, if you do trade with them, if you build relationships with them, if you cultivate that alliance, of course, you know, you've got that surety in that relationship. China doesn't have that with anyone. Well, let's hope you're right. You know, you are a liberal internationalist. And you also think that I just, you know... Think too positively about Exactly. You're very naive. You know, this was the argument that was made prior to World War I by Norman Angel, who actually won the Nobel Peace Prize. About with, Germany? With the, with the argument. Yeah, he said the British and the Germans will never go to war because they, their economies are now so, so interlinked. And you had so many Germans who were living in England. They were governesses for the children, etc. And all, the royal families were all united. You know, they're, they're all linked back to Queen Victoria. That was her grand plan for Europe. She was going to get all the children marrying off and 
And yet that only lasted, Queen Victoria's idea only lasted for 13 years after her death. So yes, we hope the trade will unite the world. And I like in my more optimistic days to say, yes, it does. But then I think back to Norman Angel, who, by the way, when he, and he wrote his book on the subject, did say that if Germany and England go to war, it'll be a disaster. And that's exactly what turned out to be the case because you had politicians in England and Germany who had ignored his advice, did go to war and bankrupted themselves. So watch this space now, pretty much. That's what we're going to do, right, Keith? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.